Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another exciting episode of Skeptics and Seekers. I'm your host, David Johnson, and today we're going to continue the discussion that we started last week about why I no longer care about the Bible and why you shouldn't either. So yesterday, uh, yesterday, last week, it was because Jesus, and we didn't have a lot of time to cover every crazy thing that Jesus had to say. We <clears throat> we only talked about what Jesus said uh, on the subject of finance, and we didn't really cover all of that either. So today we're going to pick up where we left off. We're going to move from the subject of finance, but I just want to say, if the only thing I put in this series was Jesus on finance, it is enough for you to run, not walk away from Christianity and the Bible. There is simply no justification for following a person who has such beliefs. However, we're going to take a little bit of a tougher exercise this week, because quite frankly, making fun of the crazy things Jesus said about money is shooting fish in the barrel. It's low-hanging fruit. It's really easy. I can do it all day. It doesn't require any effort at all. And yet, people still follow Jesus. And I think maybe some of it is, you know, they might take a more practical approach. They might say, well, even if he was wrong about some stuff he said about money, so what? So what? Big deal. Jesus has the words of eternal life. He has the words of salvation. And besides all that, he said a lot of really good things about love. So surely we can overlook some of the things that we may not understand that he said about money for his much more important teachings, right? So I've got a feeling that that's how, how Christians think about this. They don't actually have any answers for the stuff he said about money, but it just doesn't matter because they think he said so many other good things. So this week, I'm going to focus on the good things that Jesus said. This is not low-hanging fruit here. I've got to do a little work. And so I'm going to dial the snark back a little bit and go more into teaching mode. Hope I don't go too far into it. But there are there are some things that we're going to have to get into a little bit deeper. And we're going to have to get off the bleachers and stop pointing at the funny people in the field and get on the field uh, this week. So I hope you uh, are willing to join me there because I think a lot of Christians are there and a lot of uh, non-Christians for that matter. And uh, they're still stuck in this idea that Jesus had so many good things to say about so many other things. And so I just want to tackle those quote-unquote good things head on and see if they're really as good as people say they are. Hint, they're not. But let's start, uh, let's start with some, uh, some things that seem good anyway if you only look at them on the surface. Let's start with love. 
I'm going to contend that even the good things are bad. And I know that it's 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 kind of tough to uh, think. Well, you know what what bad could there be from a person who talks so much about love? I mean, Jesus' message was all about love. Well, first of all, if you think that Jesus' message was all about love, you haven't read three paragraphs of what Jesus had to say. His message was not all about love. There's there's some love stuff sprinkled into it. There's a lot more. Uh, to his message than that. But I would contend that if you think that the love stuff that Jesus said is the most important stuff that he said, you still don't really understand what he meant when he talked about love. And so we're, we're going to go into that today. going to open that up. going to look at that a little bit closer. You may not agree with me. That's okay. But hopefully I'll give you something to think about. First of all, I want you to think about the the fact that just saying love is not enough. There are all kinds of bad ideas about love. You know, there, there are a lot of women stuck in bad relationships who are convinced that their boyfriends or their husbands really love them. I mean, look at how much they beat them. Surely they, they love them so. Well, that, that's kind of a twisted idea of love, but that is an idea that, that people have. Conservatives were never all that impressed with uh, the hippies' idea of love. You know, they, they would say, no, that's not, that's not real love. That's a, that's a twisted idea of love. I think that we can all agree that there are ways to twist love so that, it's, so that it's no longer a good thing. And so it really depends on who's saying it and what they mean by it. You've, you've got to get underneath that. It, it doesn't make me a good person simply because I say, I love you, and I think that we ought to love each other. Maybe that's a good message. But but you need to really get underneath what I mean by it when I say it. And I, I say the same for Jesus. It's not enough just to say, oh, look, he, he had all these things to say about love. Therefore, he's a loving guy and a good teacher, and we ought to listen to him. No, you, what you actually need to do is study what he said so that you understand what he really meant when he was talking about love. Let's start with a golden rule of love. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. Matthew 7, verse 12, In everything, treat others as you would want them to treat you, for this fulfills the law and the prophets. In other words, do unto others as you would have them do to you. Now, there, there are a couple of points that I want to make about the golden rule. Because if you ask a believer or non-believer, for that matter, you know, name me, name me something good that Jesus taught. This is probably going to be the first thing that comes to mind. The golden rule. And they'll say, what's wrong with that? That's, that's perfect. That's unimpeachable. Well, it is impeachable. I'm, I'm going to impeach it. <laughs> so I'm going, to, I'm going to impeach it on <clears throat> two levels. First of all, it's not original. So even if you disagree with me on the second point, you think, uh, no, 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 this is a good saying. You're just misunderstanding it. You should, you should quit giving Jesus credit for this saying. This is not something that Jesus originated. And if you think so, you, you just need to read more deeply. This is a very ancient idea. One of, one of the more recent versions of it um, is found in Socrates, about 400 years 
before Jesus. You can also find it in Confucianism, Buddhism, Zoroastrianism, um, and uh, in the Hebrew Bible. But be- beyond that, ancient Egypt. You can go back 2,000 years before Jesus and find this little gem. Do for one who may do for you that you may cause him thus to do. In other words, do unto others as you would want them to do unto you. Um, yeah, so th- this is a very old idea. Uh, I include uh, uh, a link in the, uh, in the notes, in the write-up, so you can, you can look that up and, uh, and discover some of this for yourself. So th- the first point is, if, if you think that this is something that's uniquely special about Jesus, just stop it. I, I, there's no evidence that Jesus actually said this at all. You know, it may have been attributed to him, but if it was attributed to him, it was plagiarized from people long who who said it long before Jesus. You don't need Jesus to get this nugget of wisdom. Now, what I want to do from here is see just how small of a nugget of wisdom it actually is. Do, do under others as you would have them do for you. I contend that, uh, that this attitude has led to some of the worst atrocities in human history. Think about that for a moment. We developed the save the savages mentality because we were following the golden rule in a sense. Because a person might think, you know, if, if I'm a savage and, and I'm bound for hell, I would want someone to come and, and, and save me from that at whatever the cost. So maybe they have to come and steal my land, take away my wife and kids and all of my property, and educate my countrymen in a way that brings them uh, closer to civilization, uh, civilization and to God so that future generations... Uh, wouldn't suffer and go to hell. You might, you might think that. And so we applied that type of love to other people. That, uh, that's, that's one way it's applied. Another way uh, it's applied, something that's a little bit less dramatic. Uh, I believe the example that I used in my write-up so uh, consider that I'm the type of person who likes to sit quietly by myself with the company of a good book. That is, that is in fact, how I really like spending my time. <laughs> and so if you see me doing this a lot, you should not think to yourself, oh, David, he's lonely. We should, we should do something for him and get him out of his loneliness. Because you're thinking the way, you know, you might feel. But this is me being happy, right? But if you are applying the do unto others as you would have them do unto you rule, you might want someone to come and shake you out of your loneliness, someone to come and drag you off to you know, their idea of a good time. You, this might be just the thing that you're crying out for. This is not what I am crying out for. What I am crying out for is to be left alone. <laughs> so... Applying the golden rule to me, once you've, once you've determined that I seem lonely to you, 
is is actually disastrous. And and I would rather you didn't do it. <laughs> but this is the kind of thing that happens when you set yourself up as the arbiter for how someone else should be treated. Your desires should never be the arbiter of how someone else should be treated. The golden rule sets you up as the arbiter of how someone else should be treated or how someone else might want to be treated. That's wrong. It's bad. It's a bad idea. It does not end well. And yet this was the insight uh, provided by Jesus on this subject. So, yeah, in summary, it's not original to Jesus, so quit giving him credit for it. And also, it's a bad rule. We, we can actually do better. Let's move on. I've got, uh, I've got several examples. I've got a lot to do, so I'm, I'm going to try to make this as quick as I can, but I, I want to cover a little bit of ground. Love one another. So, I mean, surely the command to love one another, well, that, that's got to be okay, right? I mean, after all, if, if everybody loved each other, the world would be a much better place. Secular humanists talk about love, too. We want people to love one another. So surely this has got to be the, the, the greatest thing that Jesus had to say. Except I would claim that Jesus' idea of love has a few twists. It's, it's a little bit twisted. And so before you jump on board with Jesus saying, love one another, I I think that you need to take a closer look at what Jesus might have meant when he said it. Because I can assure you, he meant some things different when he said it than, for instance, when I say you ought to love one another. Here's, Here's just a couple of examples. Let's take a look. Uh, we start by uh, looking at John 14, 15. It's, it's a pretty common passage. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. It's a very short passage. What? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. L- let me just say that love and obedience are mutually exclusive. I, I might do what you desire because I love you, or I might not do what you desire. It still doesn't mean that I don't love you. I'm not your slave. I, I don't, I'm not your subordinate. I don't have to obey your commandments in order to love you. I mean, I, I can't imagine uh, me saying to my wife, for instance, look, woman, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. I, th- I think we can all see the problem with that. <laughs> that's, that's very problematic. In fact, I think we can all see the problem with any sentence that starts out by saying, if you love me. Let me read you a little bit from uh, Red Letters. You should be immediately suspicious of someone who starts a sentence with the words, if you really love me. That never ends well, but you already know that. Yet when Jesus does it, we ignore the manipulation 
and treat it as if it were something good. The suspicion is immediately paid off when we note that it is Jesus uh, that uh, I'm sorry, when we note what it is Jesus believes to be the evidence of love, you must obey him. This reminds me of the anachronistic wedding vows that assume that a woman's love for her husband is evidenced by her unquestioning obedience to his every command. You remember those wedding vows, right? You love, honor, and obey. And how the men's wedding vows never include the obey part. Because the woman is supposed to, you know, obey if, if she really loves him. That, that's a disgusting idea. It doesn't become less disgusting when Jesus says it. It's, it's not less disgusting. There's, there's more, though. I, I, w- I would say that Jesus' uh, idea of love has even more of a twist. Greater love hath no one than this. I'm sure you're familiar with the passage that uh, starts that way. Let's, uh, let's say in John uh, chapter 15, verse 12 through 14. My commandment is this, to love one another just as I have loved you. Let's further examine this idea of commanding someone to love. I mean, one gets a distinct impression that if a person commands you to love them, they do not understand love, (laughs) at least not the way you do. Let's continue with the reading. No one has greater love than this, that one lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Here again, we've got Jesus saying, do do what I command, and then I'll count that as love. But it's the middle part uh, that we want to look at right now. No one has greater love than this, that one lays down his life for his friends. Now, I believe that Jesus, and in fact Christendom uh, over the years, has a martyrdom fetish. It, it's, it's a real death cult in a lot of ways. Uh, blood, blood and death. Soak the pages of the, 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 the Christian manual. And it, so it's, it's not surprising that Jesus would think that dying for someone is the greatest example of love. <clears throat> I actually disagree with this. I think this is a very unhealthy view. And yes, there are times when one needs to lay down their life for another. But I would not, in fact, elevate that as the greatest expression of love. There are lots of times when one act of glorious sacrifice is so much easier than the alternative. And what people mostly need from us is the alternative. They don't need us to die for them. They need us to live. They need us to live for them and with them and do the millions of hard things, the little things that we are called upon to do every day 
for decades. That's the greater love. Just, just ask kids without fathers or without attentive mothers. It's, it's, it's a much greater show of love to actually do the things over the course of time where you actually have to live and sacrifice daily, constantly. That's, that's a greater love. That's my opinion. Blaze of glory? Well, it's something. It's not always love. I, I can say that a, um, a, a, a gangster will sometimes step in front of a bullet for their kid, but that doesn't mean that they were a good, loving father. The, the, the better act of love would have been to be a good father. So I, I, I just, I reject this very Christian, uh, and I should say very religious idea, because other, other religions share it too, this idea that dying is, is the ultimate act of love. It is not. I think in most cases, living for a person is the ultimate act of love. So, enough with this particular unhealthy uh, obsession. There's, there's more to understanding love, more twists that, that Jesus has when he talks about love. So we're going to put this all together at the end, but I, I want to look at another twist or two before we get there. One of those twists is self-loathing. I know that Christians think that self-loathing, they, they at least use the talking points that, you know, God doesn't want us to, to hate ourselves. But very, much of the Christian message, including uh, things that Jesus had to say, point toward self-loathing. I think it's uh, one of the reasons that Christians can so easily take on the role of suffering and martyrdom. It's because they have sufficiently lowered uh, themselves to be able to do it. Let me, let me read a passage. Um, Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort provided by love, any fellowship, there's that word again, love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection or mercy... Complete my joy and be of the same mind by having the same love. Oh, there we go again. This must be good, right? I mean, we've got love a couple of times. Being united in the Spirit and having one purpose. Instead of being motivated by selfish ambition or vanity, each of you should, in humility, be moved to treat one another as more important than yourself. Now, this is Paul. This is not Jesus, but uh, this is Paul supposedly influenced uh, by Jesus at any rate, and this is, this is what he understood Jesus to be saying. Let me read that last part again. In humility, be moved to treat one another as more important 
than yourself. Some translations say uh, uh, to regard one another higher than yourselves. Once again, I think this is rather unhealthy. This is a very unhealthy idea. I mean, I, I think that I love people in the way that I understand love, but I don't actually consider uh, people more important than me. I don't consider myself less important than everyone I, that I encounter. Frankly, I don't consider myself less important than anyone. I don't think you should either. But Paul, and I believe correctly interpreting Jesus, believes that you should, in fact, regard yourself lower than everyone else. That's, that's particularly unhealthy. This gets played out in the teachings of Jesus in a variety of ways. So I want to use as my last few passages the Beatitudes. Are you familiar with the Beatitudes? That's that long list of uh, stuff when Jesus says, Blessed are the blank, for they will receive blank. That kind of thing. Those are the Beatitudes. I want to read them. <clears throat> I want to read them so that you can get a, a real idea of some of how this idea gets twisted. And it's important because you need to understand what Jesus means when he's talking about love. And when he's talking about the kinds of attitudes you should have regarding yourself and others. The Beatitudes is a good place to look. Blessed here just means happy. You're, you were in an enviable state. You are blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For there is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things about you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad because your reward is great in heaven, for they persecuted the prophets before you in the same way. And that's Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 through 11. I'm going to skip uh, some of the middle ones. You just don't have time. Uh, I'm going to let those stand as good things. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the pure in heart. Now, in in the book, when I write about the uh, the Beatitudes, I, I actually have a particular take on those, and I don't I don't think that Jesus means what you think he means when he's saying that. But I'm I'm just going to let that stand for now, for the sake of time. Sorry for the rush. I want to just look at the first grouping, the first four, and, and look at the people, look at the, the categories of people that he considers 
blessed or in an enviable position. The poor in spirit. What? Why is that a good thing to be poor in spirit? Those who mourn. Why, why is that good? Have you ever asked yourself that? The meek. Well, okay, but wait, why is that, why is that so good? <laughs> Those who are starving for righteousness. This is a very interesting list. So I think that we can begin to understand this list, and this is how, uh, what I'm about to describe to you is how many Christian scholarly commentators uh, talk about the Beatitudes. So this is not just me going off on a, on a tear. I stand uh, in a tradition of uh, Bible scholars who read this the same way. So in the Hebrew Scripture, uh, Jesus God calls for a broken and contrite heart. That's, that's what God most wants. That's, uh, that's almost a direct quote uh, from, the, from the Beatitudes. A broken and contrite heart. You really have to be broken before God. At the end of your rope, on the last leg, at the bottom of the barrel, broken. And so when Jesus talks about the poor in spirit, that's what he's talking about. Those who mourn. Well, those are the people who mourn for, who, who recognize their own broken and sinful and hopeless position. The meek. Well, they're meek because they have been bent low and they have nothing within themselves to be proud of. And they, and they have come to that realization. Those who are starving for righteousness. It's, uh, it, I'm reminded of the place where David says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Let me be like you. Well, of course, one would have to be at a fairly low state and recognize their own inability to have a clean heart. And so the only way to get a clean heart is for God to give it to you. So those who are starving, who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness, they have come to the realization that they cannot get righteousness any other way. It, it cannot come from within. It must come from without. These are the people who, who Jesus is talking to. Or at least who Jesus is talking about. These people who, whose self-esteem has been so beaten down that they are so broken that they simply lie frustrate, uh, prostrate, disgusted with themselves in, in, in sackcloth and ashes before God in recognition of their own miserable state. That's who these people are, the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who are starving for righteousness. That's what God wants you to be. That's what God considers an enviable state. Only when you get to that state can you be considered blessed. It gets worse. So I'm, I'm skipping over some of the others. It will take, once again, it'll take me a little bit uh, long to decipher those. We might uh, do a little bit of that. 
uh, in the discussion this week if uh, if it comes up. I want to look at the last ones, and I want you to pay good uh, attention to these as well. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. If you really want to understand where Jesus is coming from with all this, this kind of spells it out. Blessed are the persecuted for righteousness. First of all, it is not an enviable position to be persecuted. Now, Jesus thinks it's a good thing to be persecuted. All who live righteousness in in Christ will suffer persecution. Jesus uh, uh, says that people should take up their cross and follow him. Jesus is all about persecution. He did not suffer and die horribly so that you wouldn't have to. He suffered and died horribly so that he could show you the way. This is what Jesus considers a blessing. Blessed when you are insulted, persecuted, slandered with evil accusations. Let me tell you, there is nothing ever good about being persecuted. It's not a good thing. You should not revel in it. You should not enjoy even a moment of it. It's awful. And if you find yourself persecuted, you should extricate yourself from that situation. It is not a good thing. It is not a blessing. If you find yourself insulted, you should not smirk knowingly that you are suffering from Jesus and thus racking up the rewards. It's a terrible thing to be insulted. When people say untrue things about you and slander you with evil accusations, if someone calls you a pedophile at work, you should not rejoice that you are suffering for the the cause of Christ. You should get a lawyer. There is nothing good about taking abuse from other people. Jesus thinks there is. He he thinks it's a pretty good thing. Consider Peter. Do you think that Peter uh, actually wrote the book of 1 Peter? I don't. But (laughs) let's just go with it. 1 Peter uh, 2.19. I know that Christians don't read their Bibles. This is going to be new to a lot of you. 1 Peter 2.19. A person might have to suffer even without... uh, I'm sorry, let me try it again. A person might have to suffer even when it is unfair. But if he thinks of God and can stand the pain, God is pleased. (laughs) That's 1 Peter 2.19. Did you catch that? God's very happy when you suffer. He's pleased. If if while you are suffering whatever torment you're suffering, you think of God when you do it, he's very happy with that. This is not a God who is going to try to remove the suffering from you. Why would he do that? He's very pleased with your suffering. This is a disgusting religion. This is a disgusting idea of love. And yet these are a part of the twists that Jesus goes through when he's talking about love. I could go on uh, for a long time in this way, but I am, I am up against the time in other, in other things. So I do apologize. 
we're going to have to cut it short here. I just want to conclude by uh, bringing to your mind John Allen Chow. Do you remember that name? He's dead. Look him up. He died horribly. And not that long ago, just a few weeks ago. He was the kid from Washington State that uh, went to those uh, forbidden islands in India. He regarded himself a missionary. He's a missionary. There's a... No, I've, I've tossed it away. Uh, in one of the articles I read, uh, he, uh, there was a quote from him that he was under the protection of God and that God had protected him from the Navy and uh, some other military group. Yeah, that, that guy, you remember him. Mr. Mr. Chow is the perfect example of what happens when you listen to a nut job like Jesus. You listen to the, the good things that Jesus had to say. When, when you try to apply the golden rule by doing to others what you would want people to do for you. So he does. When he, when he tries to obey the command of Jesus out of out of love for Jesus to to take the word to all the the nations. Yeah, he he was trying. Yeah. Um he was prepared to exhibit what he thought was the greatest love by laying down his life for others. And why not? Because he esteemed them more important than himself. And he suffered and died. And we can only imagine that God is very pleased. This is sick. This is sick. This is what happens when you take the best of what Jesus has to say Seriously. And people, it gets worse from there. It goes downhill from there. Next time, we'll move on to a proper part four of why I no longer care about what the Bible says and why you shouldn't either. In a couple of days, uh, as I record this, We'll be talking to, uh, Andrew and I will be talking to Natalie Collins on Still Unbelievable. So uh, take a look at that show. Bart Campolo will be coming up uh, shortly after that. And we're preparing for those. And in the meantime, I'm going to get back to work. And thank you all so much for joining me once again. This has been David Johnson. We'll see you next time.